Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about Jesus and John Wayne. And joining me to do that, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. Hey, Amber. Hey, John. How's it going? It's going well. And we have Grace Emmett, who is a PhD candidate at King's College London in New Testament. How's it going, Grace? Going well. Thank you, John. And we also have Grace Sengalang Ng, who is a PhD candidate in education at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's going well. And we have Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at Trinity College, Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Hey, John. Going well down here in Australia. And we have Dr. Logan Williams, who recently completed a PhD in New Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Logan? Recently, but it was a year ago today. So it's, it's, it's going well. And we have Reverend Daniel Parham, who's Director of Undergraduate Retention at Biola University and an elder at Gospel Memorial Church of God in Christ. How's it going, Daniel? Going well, John. Thank you. And we have a very special guest with us. We have Dr. Kristen Cobes Dumay, who is Professor of History at Calvin University and the author of the book that we're all very excited to chat about today, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, which came out in 2020. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Jemay. Oh, thank you for having me. So one of the takeaways of your book that is made so compelling by the history that you report is that evangelicals voted for Trump in mass, not in spite of their religious beliefs and values, but because of them. So to start off our conversation, I'm curious to know if you had been researching this topic for some time before Trump, or did his election really kind of kickstart the project? No, I had been looking into evangelical masculinity and militarism for more than 15 years, actually. So I I got interested in the topic back in 2005 or 2006, and it was uh, students at the Christian University where I teach who brought to my attention uh, the literature on Christian masculinity, and particularly at that time, uh, John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. And I had just been lecturing on Teddy Roosevelt and showing them uh, how Teddy Roosevelt was this great example of how gender worked, how masculinity worked. It was linked to uh, the American nation, to empire, to you know, foreign policy, to religion, all these things. And, and they said, Professor DeMay, there's this book you really have to read. And, and it was Eldridge's book. And Eldridge opens his book, Wild at Heart, with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And he goes on to sketch this very militant uh, picture of, of what it is to be a Christian man. And, um, and now this was, again, 2005, 2006, uh, in the early years of the Iraq War. And uh, I was aware of survey data that demonstrated that uh, white evangelicals were um, more likely than other Americans to support that war, to support preemptive war in general, to condone the use of torture, to really embrace this aggressive foreign policy. And so I started to wonder how these things might fit together. Uh, I actually set the project aside for a time after about a year or a year and a half of research. Um, I had other projects going on and I, I had this nagging question of um, how mainstream is this, what I'm looking at? Because what I was looking at was incredibly disturbing. Uh, it was very misogynistic, um, very, um, um, you know, militant and, and it seemed really extreme, frankly. <laughs> and, and so I thought, you know, I'll come back to this at some point. And then one thing led to another and I picked up another project and then the fall of 2016 came around and it was actually in, in the days after the Access Hollywood tape released that um, I thought I've seen this before. Uh, and it was then in the weeks after the election that I dusted off that old research and decided to turn it into this book. 
Dr. May, you talk, you've mentioned sort of this idea of sort of militant masculinity, and that's a theme that really runs throughout the book. Can you tell us the sort of few different iterations that we find of that over the last sort of hundred years or so, I guess, that your book looks at? Sure. I, um, I, mean, I really think that although I look back in the book to the 19th century, to the early 20th century, muscular Christianity, really the story that I'm telling falls into place more in the 1940s and 1950s. And so it's important to start with this idea uh, that emerges in the, the Cold War context in particular um, that links this kind of defense of Christian America uh, with gender traditionalism or with the idea that gender difference is really important. It's part of God order for the world. And, and so men and women are um, exceedingly different and God created men to be providers and protectors. And in the Cold War era, the, the role of protector was really important. And because the threat was a military threat, uh, that protection was a kind of military protection that, that was required. And so uh, we needed strong men uh, who could defend faith, family, and nation we needed a strong military and we needed a strong church, strong Christianity to, to hold this all together. Uh, so that was kind of the foundation. And, and then I, I kind of trace this through even people like, like James Dobson, who's absolutely central to this story, uh, really kind of the grandfather of family values evangelicalism. Uh, but for him, again, this gender difference was really at the core and it was, it was really white patriarchal authority that was at the center, always at the center of family values evangelicalism. And then it morphs through, we have all sorts of figures from uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. and his Thomas Road Baptist Church really uh, kind of embraces this militancy and embraces the military um, and influences evangelicalism really um, across the country through his, his um, media ministry. Uh, you've got folks like, uh, more recently, Mark Driscoll is a great example. And this, uh, you know, Driscoll was at his height when I first uh, started paying attention to this topic. And that was one of my questions, you know, like, what do I do with this guy? He's incredibly misogynistic, incredibly crass. And uh, come on, he cannot be mainstream, right? And then at the same time, he was incredibly influential um, for a generation of pastors and a generation of young evangelical men. And, and so part of the project in this book was really taking some of those more extreme examples, but then situating them in terms of the broader movement and demonstrating how uh, the, the mainstream and what we might consider fringe were actually really closely connected in many cases. Hey, this is Logan. And maybe if you could choose three of the most wild things you found in your research. What are some of the ones that immediately come to mind, expressions of um, you know, militant Christian masculinity that you spent probably far too much time <laughs> in uh, to stay sane? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll start with one that's actually femininity, uh, closely connected. And that would be, I, I have a chapter early in the book on um, what this looks like for women, this you know, stark gender difference. And honestly, it was quite shocking to me to read the literature on um, on the evangelical sex manuals from the 1960s and 1970s. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> and shout out to my research assistants who did more of their share, uh, more than their share of that as well. And, uh, but first of all, evangelicals loved to write about sex. They still do. And uh, they're very graphic in, in some cases, much more so than you might imagine. 
in fact, when I first sent this off to uh, a sample chapter to um, editors and to publishers, I know at least one of them uh, can open it because of their porn filters. <laughs> and this is just, you know, a history book on evangelical uh, femininity and sexuality. So uh, anyway, uh, it was uh, that uh, the consistent theme that I came across that was actually quite horrifying that uh, it was uh uh, a Christian woman's duty to uh, not just submit to her husband in terms of, you know, domestic authority, uh, but also to submit to her husband sexually, that it was her job to please her husband and that men were naturally lustful. They're filled with testosterone. They have very little restraint and that's just the way God made them. So it's up to women to protect virtue through modesty if um, they are not married. Uh, and that's kind of a familiar story, but if they are married, then it is their obligation to meet their husband's every sexual need. And, uh, you know, reading that in light of uh, the Me Too church movement. Um, and actually in the ensuing years from when I started this research to when I picked it up again, I never stopped paying attention. And it was in those years that I saw one after another of the really key proponents of this militant evangelical masculinity became enmeshed in uh, sexual abuse scandals. So this was already in my radar. So when I went back and looked, I, I, I saw, well, this is where that comes from, right? And, and this is not just the abuse, and not even primarily the abuse necessarily, but the inability of so many in evangelical communities and families and churches to call out that abuse, to condemn it, and um, and to support victims. So, so that would be one of the more shocking things. Yeah. Um, are, are you suggesting that these handbooks are kind of theological defenses which cite uh, marital rape? Uh, well, uh, some of them do allow for that, uh, or it, there, there really isn't a concept of marital rape because it is a man's prerogative and it is a woman's obligation. So yes, that, that is actually a theme. Um, but I, I think even more powerfully, again, it's, it's the fact that so many women are unable to identify abuse as abuse. And, uh, and so many um, survivors have really borne the brunt of that, both personally wrestling with um, the abuse that they have experienced in these circles, and then also the ways in which they have been ostracized from these communities as victims, and where it's it's the perpetrators who who tend to be defended and protected. Um, so that would be one thing. Let's see other shocking things. I'd have to say my my chapter on uh, Islamophobia is that was just you know kind of shocking to to encounter that now i knew a bit about that story because as i write about in the book one of these so this is a chapter that traces uh the proliferation in the years after september 11 2001 the proliferation of fake ex-muslim terrorists <laughs> that were all the rage like traveling the evangelical speaking circuit supported by cbn by focus on the family um, you know, writing books, best-selling books on the Islamic threat. And they were purportedly, you know, former terrorists who were out to kill Americans, to kill American Christians, and especially American evangelicals, because they were the most faithful. And, you know, what I discovered when uh, my first tip on, on what was actually going on here was when one of these guys came to my own university and one of my colleagues, a historian of, uh, of um, the Ottoman Empire who knew a, a thing or two about Islam, uh, detected immediately, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This is just, it's, it's all fake. And, and then what happened is he tried to get to the bottom of it. 
And he actually uh, connected with the president of Focus on the Family. And turns out they knew it. They knew he was a fraud. And they had employed him and they had promoted him and they continued to promote his teaching. And to me, that was a moment that things really clicked for me. Like the whole book kind of clicked for me because I realized so much of the narrative of 2016 and, and really looking back at evangelical politics was this narrative of fear, fear leading to desperation, right? You know, evangelicals were so afraid. They were afraid for their religious liberty. They were afraid because of demographic changes. They were afraid of secularism and liberals and all of these things. And so they were just, they, they were kind of pushed into the arms of Donald Trump. What choice did they have? And when I, when I saw what was happening with these fake ex-Muslim terrorists, I, I had to flip that script. I had to say, um, I mean, on an individual basis, yes, the fear was real. Um, it was genuine but it was manufactured. It was manufactured by leaders um, with very specific uh, interests in mind, uh, usually or always enhancing their own power. And they were able to do that by stoking fear in the hearts of followers so that their followers would then like, come to them for protection. And once that clicked, I mean, I saw that was exactly what was happening in Falwell Senior's church. Exactly. That was exactly what was happening in Mark Driscoll's church. You could just see this pattern. This is what's happening in terms of fundraising for organizations and the religious right. This is really the culture wars playbook. Um, so that was just a really important uh, observation. So let's see, that's two crazy things. I need one more. <laughs> okay, the, the third thing I would say is uh, in the same kind of section of the book, the, just the, the really deepening, tightening connection between evangelicals and the U.S. military. And uh, with some very clear implications, I think, for um, U.S. policy, for war. <laughs> and um, I think we haven't seen, I know we haven't seen the end of this, uh, what this looks like, what this means, what this means uh, for American Christianity, what this means for the U.S. military and for our nation. Thanks so much, Chris, and um, much appreciated for, for those insights. Uh, it's Chris here. And um, looking on from a an Australian perspective, or at least a non-American non perspective, I find it really interesting that there has been this shift that happened around 9-11, uh, around uh, the second Iraq war. And certainly I grew up in, in and around American Baptist circles here in Australia, and also in and around uh, military circles uh, here in Australia. Um, and there, we didn't see that same shift as, to the same degree anyway here in Australia, there was certainly an increase in uh, the talk of militarization and the Australian Christian lobby came out of uh, the Australian Special Forces, um, as, so political lobbying being intertwined with militarism, but not to the same degree. I'm wondering uh, what anchors that? You've gone, uh, in your title of your book, you go back to John Wayne, but is there an anchor of this that goes back further uh, to American exceptionalism, uh, to the rhetoric of the promised land? Uh, how far back uh, or how deep does the rabbit hole go, I guess? <laughs> it goes deeper than I, than I could trace it here. Yeah. I mean, you can just keep following it back and, and, and it's, it's Christian nationalism, right? This American exceptionalism, this idea that America was founded as a Christian nation, as a special Christian nation, and therefore it has this, this critical mission in the world. Uh, and, and so immediately then the stakes are always incredibly high. And what is good for America is good for God. And uh, what is good for America is absolutely worth protecting. 
uh, worth defending uh, at all costs, right? And so, so this motif really does run through and uh, through American history, really. Uh, and then you could bring in racial dynamics, right? Uh, that are are very much a theme of this book. This is a history of white evangelicalism, emphasis on the the whiteness, and um, and again, the patriarchy that I'm looking at is a white patriarchy, and so it's connected with um, uh, with imperialism, with empire, with um, this longer history of racial um, uh, injustice. And oppression in the United States, and so, so yes, the the, the roots go way back um, uh, for all of these things. And um, at the same time, I, I think it's important to not um, see this as an inevitable story that there was only one thread that we could kind of pull through, uh, because you have other um, uh, kind of iterations of American Christianity. You have other iterations of American evangelicalism in American history too. So you have this revivalist movement that um, for a time seems to really upend social hierarchies. Yeah, when, it, when evangelicalism first kind of um, uh, um, reaches the American South for a time, it looked like it was going to um, destabilize uh, the racial and gender and, and class hierarchies. And then uh, those hierarchies kind of reassert themselves. And, and then, and then we, we see actually the opposite, this very you know, white patriarchal. Uh, tradition and that um, really takes hold within evangelicalism. And then later in the 20th century, we see that really spread across America, uh, American evangelicalism. Uh, you also have, you know, evangelical feminism. You have evangelicals involved in abolitionism and progressive reform, all of which is to say it's complicated. That's kind of a historian's uh, fallback, but it's true. Uh, so yes, I, I think we can find continuities. We can find these threads um, and trace them way back. Um, but then what, what we also need to do is, is see some of the paths not taken and then see the particular way in which these themes came together at particular moments in American history. And that's where, again, the 1940s, early 50s are critical, 60s, such a, a kind of fracturing moment when evangelical values, um, uh, kind of faith, family, nation, gender traditionalism, militarism, all that stuff. They hadn't been so different from other Americans holding those values in the 1950s. It was in the 1960s that evangelicals kind of stay the same, right? They're, they're still holding on to these things. But then you have the feminist movement, civil rights movement, uh, anti-war movement. And that's when evangelicals feel like these are their distinctives. Now, this is what they, as a chosen people in God's chosen nation, they have a, they have a, a special calling, a duty to hold on to these and to promote and protect these values. And so the so long answer to the uh, short answer is it's, it's complicated and you see continuity. You also see a lot of change. So as a historian, I, I really want to look at, at particular moments and, um, and, and, and kind of trace the development of, it, of these ideas in very specific ways over time. Thank you, Dr. DeMay. Uh, this is Daniel here. Just given some of the context that, that you've already shared and, and what you've written, um, how would you say your book or even your own voice beyond the book would speak to uh, the recent insurrection that we saw at the U.S. Capitol this year in 2021? So what we saw was um, shocking, obviously, but, but also not surprising. Not surprising if you know this history. Uh, and uh, here I have to be careful because uh, it, it was a relatively small number of people um, who engaged in this act. 
but there were larger numbers who were attending the rally uh, ahead of time um, that where, where this was incited and far larger numbers who are sympathetic to um, certainly the aims, if not the tactics, but also to the tactics um, in, in many cases, more cases than, than you might imagine, I think, um, particularly if we're looking at white evangelicalism and thinking of, well, how could Christians how could Christians, right, who are supposed to turn the other cheek, who are supposed to uh, love their enemies, who are, so, you know, not supposed to condone violence, uh, how could they do this? And, and that's where we really have to look to this history, right? For, for decades now, they have been taught, they have been preaching and teaching, they have been publishing books, they've been doing Bible studies that have celebrated uh, this heroic Christian manhood. This, um, this need to do what needs to be done. Um, again, God made men aggressive so that they can defend faith, family, and nation and um, filled them with testosterone so that they, they um, have, have what it takes. And um, now sometimes this was metaphorical. Uh, and, you know, so we have John Eldridge's uh, God is warrior and every man is made in the image of this warrior God. Every man has a battle to fight. Uh, but it wasn't always just metaphorical, right? This is, again, uh, uh, soon uh, post 9-11 context. And suddenly that metaphorical battle became pretty real. Um, the culture wars gave some pretty, uh, you know, uh, uh, Op clear opportunities to engage in uh, kind of ruthless tactics on the home front uh, in the realm of politics. And, and so we really do see a precedent for um, this heroic redemptive violence uh, for when the stakes are high. And again, the stakes are always high because God and country and they're intertwined are at stake always. And so you need to act, you need to act aggressively and you need to act um, not just defensively, but preemptively uh, because the threats are just so great. And again, um, for, for decades now, and particularly for the last two decades, evangelical men and women are reading these books, but evangelical men have been studying these books on how to be a Christian man. And these books became increasingly militant. Uh, and, uh, and they've kind of imbibed this. And so they're heroes, the, the real, it's not like every evangelical man is out there, uh, you know, uh, climbing mountains and shooting deer and smearing blood and, uh, you know, uh, and, and fighting in wars, but, uh, they tend to admire those who are and see that those are the men who exhibit these leadership qualities. And somewhat ironically, it's the men who have not been deeply formed by traditional Christian virtue, who are those who most clearly exemplify these warrior traits. So a man like John Wayne, right, either on screen or off, uh, not, not deeply shaped by traditional Christian virtues by any stretch, not a family values kind of guy, uh, or a man like Donald Trump, um, completely uninhibited. And in a way that no Christian man really could be, or at least very few could be. And so he was, he was kind of the perfect, the perfect strong man, precisely because he was uninhibited um, by traditional Christian virtue. And so these are some of the pieces that we have in place. And then you have Trump himself, uh, you know, really stoking this, um, 
fear, um, escalating the situation, inciting violence, and, and then just throw into the mix uh, conspiracy theories and echo chambers and evangelicals had long um, been, been uh, preaching and teaching that you, you can't trust the media for, for decades, right? At least half a century. They need their own media. They need, you cannot trust outsiders. We have the truth. Um, and so that, that's a piece of this as well. Um, and so there's a lot of misinformation, but there certainly is this idea of uh, redemptive violence, that violence is necessary to achieve order. And that's true Christian masculinity. That's, that's a real hero. Hi, Dr. Dumay, this is Amber. So speaking about the insurrection at the Capitol, one of the things that we saw in the media all over were signs, we saw crosses, we saw lots of signs that said Jesus saves and other such things. Uh, I'm wondering if you could comment on that in light of what you were saying about your analysis of, of what happened in light of this Christian nationalism and concepts of masculinity. Yeah, I was asked by a reporter just a couple of days ago, were you surprised to see all this, the, this Christian symbolism there? And I said, no, I mean, I would be very surprised if we weren't seeing that uh, because again of the, this history. And uh, one of the things that I, I really discovered as I was researching this book was how the evangelical embrace of this militant masculinity, um, you know, back, especially in the 60s and 70s, when it really did become more oppositional as, you know, we are upholding traditional masculinity over against the emasculating forces of feminism, over against the anti-war movement, the hippies, you know, and uh, who cannot and will not defend the nation. Uh, what I saw is, is that uh, that embrace of, of militancy and militant, almost retrograde masculinity brought them into alignment with secular conservatism, right? And here again, the John Wayne figure with, with uh, non-Christian uh, traditionalists. And so you see this alignment develop historically, politically, but especially, I mean, culturally, uh, the same cultural identity uh, starts to unite conservative white evangelicals who have embraced this militancy and secular conservatives as well. And so that's, that's a, a theme that I kind of trace through the book, but that's certainly what we see in uh, this, this insurrection. When you, you know, I'm sure many of the people at that, um, uh, at the uh, riot were not church attending practicing Christians many of them were, but they certainly identify as uh, with each other across whatever differences, those differences subside so that the, the Christians who are there have, you know, feel much more affinity to um, maybe uh, the uh, secular white nationalists, uh, to the Proud Boys, and not that all Proud Boys are secular, certainly, uh, than they would to, say, a progressive evangelical who um, ostensibly shares much of their same theology. Um, or even devotional practices. And so, so that's this kind of alignment that, that I trace, uh, an alignment that really does um, um, connect around, around this cultural identity and gender is, is very much at the heart of that. Um, but yeah, there were, you know, we see that, saw the Jesus saves, we saw crosses, we saw um, uh, you know, one of the men was wearing this um, 
um, armor of God patch. Um, and and I, that got some attention. I looked that up and you can buy it on Amazon. It's this kind of, you know, fake military patch, but you can also find a lot of those little patches, armor of God that are sold for Sunday schools and vacation Bible schools. Right. And these are the kind of connections that I think it's important for us to, to recognize, uh, again, the affinities here. Uh, we saw there's video of the Proud Boys um, kneeling in prayer um, at uh, this insurrection before the insurrection. And uh, it was striking. You can just if you listen and you can just hear the prayer and it is just it's an evangelical prayer. The cadences, the the words, the phrases like it, it, it is it could be given in any in any evangelical you know, men's Bible study. Um, and so, so we see the connections. It's not just signs and symbols, although it is signs and symbols. It's really the fusion of this quote unquote God and country patriotism. And it becomes its own thing, really transforms the God, transforms the country. And, and this is the point where, where they come together. Dr. Jume, one of the things that I really appreciated about reading your book was it helped me understand my parents and grandparents so much better. <laughs> Um, and that's just what history is supposed to do. And there, there are things that we didn't live through in the same way. And um, so it, it really did shed so much light. I found myself, I listened to the audible version of it and I found myself just saying out loud, oh, that's why <laughs> so many things came together for me. Um, but so I, I, I was also wondering this question in light of our current context right now, especially with the uproar over Trump being removed from social media platforms. And everybody's talking about how he's effectively being silenced and there's, you know, this threat over for free freedom of speech. And I mean, people are in an uproar about this. And what I'm curious is what sort of historical sensitivities are present in that anxiety? Uh, well, I think primarily it, it just feeds into this victim mentality, this persecution narrative that has um, uh, really accompanied this kind of militancy. And, and it, on the surface, it might seem contradictory, but, but it's not. It's not at all, right? That it is precisely because um, the world is out to get you purportedly that, right, this, this militancy is required. And, uh, and it does get a little complicated because on the one, sound, one hand, there's a sense of entitlement, right? America is a Christian nation. This is our land. We have the special task. We have the special duty. We are at the center of things, but we're also marginalized, right? Because, and, and usually that point of marginalization, again, is right around the 1960s. <laughs> so, so we have the truth. We know what's right, but you just won't let us implement it, right? And so we need to take that back. We need to reposition ourselves. We need the authority, take our country back and reassert proper morality, proper right, discipline and um, proper religion. And so, so you have that motif. And so that explains this like kind of constant, both entitlement and uh, victim mentality. And the victim mentality fuels uh, the militancy. Again, that's just the way this equation works. And so that it works perfectly in this respect. Again, uh, uh, and, and really the, you know, fighting for your rights is also a part of this religious liberty, religious freedom, which does not apply equally in most cases uh, um, for evangelicals who are advocating for religious liberty. What they really mean is a special privilege for American Christians because 
they think America is a Christian nation and it just makes sense. And that's the way that we will be obedient and get, get God's blessing. And that's our right and duty. Right. And so, so you have to kind of get beneath the surface a little bit, but in the, the anger around uh, Trump being deplatformed, you'll get a, a, you know, a lot of this um, conspiratorial thinking. See, we told you they're out to get us. And, uh, you know, big tech is out to get us and liberals and, um, and, and so, you know, we need, we need to fight. This is our last stand kind of thing. We need to stand up right now, um, because things are going to get dark really fast. I mean, I'm seeing that I'm reading that. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's part of this. Um, yes, there's a longer history that that's fueling, fueling this anxiety. But again, uh, this anxiety on an individual level, it makes sense. The, the fear is genuine, but I always look, you know, uh, behind, try to, try to draw back the curtain. Who is, who's stoking this anxiety? Who stands to gain by stoking this fear in the hearts of ordinary American Christians? So this is Grace Ng. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Dume, for being here. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed reading your book and it really did help me kind of put the historical pieces together, I think, because for a long time, I really didn't understand this like diehard Trumpism and why white evangelicals so like strongly supported him. Um, but once I read, you know, the historical context um, from your book, I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I finally get it, like why this is happening. And so um, you had mentioned that narrative of fear that a lot of like evangelical leaders put into place um, to, you know, gain more power over people. And um, my question is, how do we help evangelicals overcome this narrative of fear, um, especially the fear of the other? This is a hard question. That's the hardest question. I'm much better answering history questions. <laughs> I'm a lot of, uh, weaker when it comes to telling us what we should do. And I'll just put that right up out there. But uh, obviously I've thought a lot about this. And so I'll, I'll bring history to bear on this, but I, I have a lot of uncertainty because to be honest, the story that I tell is a discouraging one. It shows just how deeply embedded these values are and these propensities and how difficult it is to break through. And anybody who's tried to talk across these differences to family and friends, I mean, you know this, right? It's, um, you, you like to think that, hey, we're, we're Christians. Uh, let's open the Bible together, right? Let's see what does scripture teaches on this, on immigration reform, on war, on, you know, fill in the blank. And that just gets you nowhere. And um, because, because we're reading the scriptures through these um, really op- competing cultural lenses. So, so what can we do uh, when I've seen people, first of all, I've, I've seen very few people in the last few years change their minds. I've been watching very closely and very few people, the, the evangelicals who are speaking out boldly against Trump were those who were doing so in 2016 with very few exceptions. So that's not very helpful in terms of uh, changing people's minds. In the book, towards the end, I write just a little bit about um, men and women, especially men who had um, kind of deconverted from this um, militant Christian, uh, militant Christianity, really militant Christian masculinity. And their examples, I think, um, provide some guidance here. 
it was often through simply through meeting the other, <laughs> through spending time um, away from these men's only Bible studies, men's only groups. And that's a huge thing in evangelical churches, right? You've got your men's group and you've got your women's group and you've got your young men's group and you, and, um, and more than one man has told me that, you know, it was actually just having good relationships, intellectual conversations, theological conversations with women uh, that convinced them that some of these truths that they were being taught weren't true at all in terms of the stark gender difference in terms of this, this whole complementarian system and you know, um, patriarchal authority. And it just didn't ring true. Um, others told me that it was, it was meeting egalitarian couples, you know, couples in egalitarian marriages that, you know, they, they had been so formed by these patriarchal values that they just didn't think you could be a faithful Christian in an egalitarian marriage. And then they would meet these phenomenally, you know, uh, spiritual, kind, loving, uh, couples who, who were not, you know, conservative, who didn't embrace patriarchy. And that just messed with their categories and that opened up their thinking, uh, you know, difference, particularly across race and ethnicity also very important, but we know that, I mean, Americans in general tend to live in, in fairly segregated spaces and uh, American Christianity is even more segregated. So, so this is a problem. And what we see then are these ideologies are able to flourish when they are not actively challenged by lived experience. So there's no shortcut here, unfortunately, right? I think that the, the way to have these conversations to overcome fear really has to be done. You know, we can say our thing, and I think it's important to speak our truth in this moment, particularly for American Christians right now, um, because there's been a lot of silence that actually has papered over these really deep, stark and dangerous differences. So I, I, I do encourage people to speak, which isn't just a Facebook screed, but just so that people who know you, people you are in relationship with actually know where you stand on this precisely because that can start to mess with some of their categories and think, well, wait, I, I know this person is a lovely woman who leads Bible studies, who sings in the choir. And she is saying, you know, this is dangerous. This is not godly. This is, that's, that's more of what we need. So no shortcuts, relationships, just personal witness are, um, are, are absolutely necessary. So this needs to really be done on the grassroots level more than just people shouting into the void. That recommendation really resonates with me. Uh, and I think it uh, holds true actually from my experience. I'm deeply ashamed to say this, uh, but for a time, I actually did attend a Mars Hill church uh, in SoCal. This was in a different period of my life, probably, I want to say, eight or nine years ago. And I, I did have a kind of affinity to uh, Driscoll's kind of masculine, militant masculine preaching. It sounded really awesome to me, but I'm just not that kind of person. So I just always felt like, ah, oh, this is what I should be. Like, I should be this, like, man's man, angry dude. Uh, I did swear a lot, and I still do that, so I guess that fits the bill. But other than that, I had about no other qualities, but I did idealize it, right? And I went to an, a Mars Hill church, and of course, we had, uh, in, our, in, our, in our small groups, we had, like, the time where we'd, we'd eat together in mixed groups, and then when we'd actually talk about Jesus stuff, we, we, you know, the men would go outside under a little gazebo, the woman would stay inside. 
and I always find this, you know, a bit weird. Because growing up, I grew up mostly around females um, in my family. Most of my most of my family members are female, and the ones who were around when I was a kid, and and thus I b- became friends as I grew up mostly with, with females. So I remember the the thing that got me to actually leave Marcel Church was when uh, I mentioned, you know, a female that I was friends with, and uh, I was legitimately told by one of the elder people at Marcel Church that I shouldn't have female friends because it will only ev- inevitably lead to sexual sin. So either I hang out with this person, I'm friends with this person because I want them to be my wife, or they have to be an acquaintance. And I, I, I just had to believe that either this person who told me this is a sexual deviant who can't keep himself from you know, sexually advancing upon anyone he's friends with which is a serious problem or this dude has just like never tried to have a female friend and so i just found this so ridiculous on the basis of my own experience that i thought i literally just can't do this anymore because it's just so detached from reality Um, but i think the difficulty as you point out is that there are sectarian boundaries being constructed all the time don't go hang out with the liberals. Don't go hang out with the egalitarians. They don't know anything about Jesus. Don't study the Bible with them. Don't go, don't go to their houses, whatever, unless you're like ministering to them or whatever. So I think it, it, it makes it all the more, the more difficult. But I just, I just wanted to share that story that actually it was really my experience that I was just like, I'm going to leave this church because these people are saying things that are just not aligning with reality. Um, yeah. And that's really what got me to see and sort of getting me out, sort of drawing my attention to all these problems with Mars Hill Church. Thank God I got out in 2012. Uh, Well-timed. You know, I've heard since this book, obviously I talked to a lot of people in um, researching this book, but really not, not nearly as many as I've heard from since the book has published. I've, I've received hundreds and hundreds of messages from people, emails, you know, letters, some phone calls, um, all telling their own stories of you know their own uh, involvement in this. Uh, by far, uh, the, the most frequent kind of comment starts starts off with like, "This is the story of my life," and then they go ahead and tell me how it is. And many of these stories are really filled with pain, uh, pain from uh, what it was like as to, as a girl to grow up in this purity culture, to to grow up. Um, in some cases, uh, they have their own stories of abuse and others just of never feeling like they could fit in. I mean, that's some of the consequences here for men, for women. If you weren't a manly man, you felt like a second-class citizen, a second-class Christian. Uh, if you weren't a feminine, submissive woman, uh, also, right, the same. Maybe the church wasn't the place for you. Some of these people walked away from the church. Many people over time ended up walking away from, from Christianity because if this is Christianity, they couldn't do it. Um, and, and, you know, also the same for LGBTQ folks, right? There was no place in this um, kind of stark gender difference um, for, for anybody who, who uh, didn't fit into that very stark binary um, and, and very, you know, prescribed binary. And so, uh, yes, I have heard so many stories um, since this book has published that this, this really was the experience, you know, honestly, I think of millions of American Christians. Um, so, so people are coming to terms with the implications of this book politically in this moment, um, but also very deeply uh, personally as well. Thank you for that, Dr. Sume. Um, this is Grace Emmett here. I was thinking about how 
in some ways it feels like there's a kind of moment of uh, consideration that's happening like you're you're sharing in those stories that you've received kind of people able to reflect on the journeys they've had and it's kind of thinking about where that's happening in other movements generally and I, I sort of find the promise keepers really fascinating as a group and you talk about them in one of your chapters and they're sort of having a bit of a resurgence now kind of having been quiet for sort of almost 20 years and um, so I'm kind of watching them quite kind of keenly to see what happens and how is this different to kind of promise keepers 1.0 I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about that and what you think that means I suppose that they feel like there's this need to kind of resurrect that PK movement a second time. Yeah, or a third time. I think it would count. I'm not sure. It depends depending on uh, which iteration. If you count the first two as one, or we had a kind of revival, although they never actually went away. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, I don't think right now the Promise Keepers has anything close to the power. Well, I know it doesn't that it had in the 1990s. And and this was kind of like the the second iteration um, uh, that I was just referring to um, in the uh, 2000s, right? Promise Keepers tried to kind of revitalize the movement and they had to do so by really distancing themselves from the first iteration. It was too soft. It was too gentle. It was too, you know, and forget this all, all this racial reconciliation stuff. And, and you know, we need to rebrand. And so, uh, you know, this is where where the, um, the, the warrior comes out and swords and um, men on horseback. And, you know, they're really trying to kind of catch up with where evangelicalism had gone, had, had gone. I think that um, that's what I would imagine would be seeing as well. I know that the Promise Keepers event, I was really excited because of COVID, it was going to be held online, but then I had a, a two-day conference that I was participating in, um, so I couldn't tune into the Promise Keepers. So I don't have the, the firsthand knowledge of that. I don't know, maybe you did. Um, and so it'd be interesting um, to see how they rebrand for this moment and then kind of look at, you know, numbers, which, which would signify, is this really resonating in the same way or in a different way today? Is it resonating powerfully? So is it a culturally significant thing or, um, or not? But I would also say, I mean, throughout this book, I always try to um, make money visible. And it's important to think of these ministries as businesses as well. And so there's always a financial interest to try to revive something, to try to revitalize a brand and to try to draw in a new generation of consumers. And so that's just always a, a lens that I would like to add to any of these things. There's always money changing hands, you know, whether it's um, through a Christian magazine and we want subscribers and this gets back into that kind of, uh, don't get your news from outside sources. You can't trust them. Well, there is an ideological impulse there, but there's also a financial impulse. Um, let's, let's be honest, right? Christian publishing, huge, huge money-making business, right? When you look at the numbers of these books that were sold, you know, John Eldridge, 4 million copies. Now that's a lot of royalties. <laughs> I know when I was, I, I worked with a, a publisher who's completely outside of the, this, this world, this religious world. And my editor asked me at some point, like, are you sure about these numbers? And you know, he had, I think he, he double checked them. And it's just like, what, 
what is this? Right. And I mean, it, the irony right now is that this book, I mean, it's not selling 4 million uh, copies by any stretch, but it's tapping into those same networks and it's kind of uh, startling my publisher, like what is happening and, and where, you know, what are you in fact, just yesterday I got emailed, tell us what you're doing because we need to understand this. So I was like, you know, that evangelical subculture I was telling you guys about, like, that's what we're seeing here. What we're seeing is um, church small groups are <laughs> now reading Jesus and John Wayne, uh, right? These ministry conferences, pastors conferences, small scale. I'm not talking gospel coalition yet, if ever, but uh, right. They are now um, having study groups around this book. They're inviting me to speak and then they all read it. And it's a business, right? I kind of stumbled into it. I'm as surprised as anyone. But right, this is exactly how this works. Now, for me, it's this tiny, tiny, tiny scale compared to folks like John Piper, like Mark Driscoll, like, you know, James Dobson, I, there is, and, and John Eldridge, right? so many of these books have just sold like crazy. And so there's just a ton of money being made. Uh, and same thing with the, with the promise keepers, like I, in that chapter saying, you know, probably the long-term significance there is that it really opened up this, this market for books on Christian masculinity. And it was an attractive market. I mean, when I started researching this again, in early 2000s, I, I was looking at those sales figures and I was like, I could write one of these things. I can write one of these things. They just like virtually plagiarized from each other. Same cast of characters, same phrases, everything. Like I just need a good pen name, you know, Chuck somebody. And I could make a ton of money, um, way more than I'll ever make as, as an academic trying to sell books. And so, yeah, there's a formula and there's a real um, allure, I think, that is, that is frankly um, financial. Thanks, Kristen. I'm, I'm really interested in just this nature of what we're seeing at the moment in terms of sectarianism and, and a shift uh, towards a sectarian narrative. Uh, certainly, uh, I guess, to, to think sociologically, Max Weber. Uh, has thinking about church and sect before the First World War is reflecting on the nature of the American church and the and the, and how it relates to one another as as a relationship of people, uh, but where people are in it for their own gain. Uh, but that then suddenly after the First World War seems to become very much is the sense of everyone's on the outer. A sect is is on the outer. It's it's fringe to the center. But yet under Trump, um, under the last four years of the administration, we, we've had this narrative that the, the fringe is becoming more of the center. And certainly that was a lot of the narrative in the Capitol. Um, we're retaking our, our Capitol building. We're retaking the center. And yet then it seems to have almost reversed again in the last couple of days that the fringe is now on the fringe again. Uh, the no-fly lists are being populated and we're seeing how fringe parlor really is. Uh, or is it Palais? I'm not sure. Uh, but I'm interested in your reflections um, for, uh, from a historical perspective about this nature of the center and the fringe uh, going back and forth uh, about how that works. Um, oh, yeah, that's a great question. And that, that again, was this kind of struggle. Um, first, you know, should I write this book? Is it, does it warrant, you know, this level of attention if this is just a fringe movement? Um, but when I did pick up the book again, that was really one of my, my motivating questions, partly just to justify doing this book, right? You know, like, wait, what, how, what do we do with a guy like Bill Gothard, for example? 
And I had no plans initially to include Bill Gothard in this book because I didn't want to discredit the book. I didn't want everybody to just pounce on me and say, this guy is total fringe, you know, and, and just dismiss the whole argument. Uh, but I kept having people tell me, you are including Bill Gothard, aren't you? You're going to be including him because his influence was beneath the surface, but it, it was deep and it was broad. And, uh, and so I did, but then again, I, I paired him with James Dobson. James Dobson, super mainstream, Bill Gothard, intentionally very fringe. But in the end, they were saying very, very complimentary things. Very, uh, they were closely aligned when it came to authority, hierarchy, um, you know, patriarchy, and uh, and child rearing. And so, so that's really how I tried to tease that out. When you get to the two thousands, too, yeah, you've got Mark Driscoll, and then you've got this guy Doug Wilson, right? And then you've got the whole homeschoolers movement, and those two had really been just written off as fringe. You can't. You can't really judge evangelicalism by the fringe. So let's just not even talk about them. And instead, let's talk about Wheaton College and let's talk about Christianity today, right? And that, and those are largely the histories that we have up to this point, at least academic histories of evangelicalism, like saying this is the center. Now, not coincidentally, many of those histories are written by white evangelicals themselves who happen to be intellectuals. They're the ones writing the books who happen to have been, you know, kind of centered in places like Wheaton or Christianity Today. And those are those their circles. And so um, this was an intentional kind of shift here, not saying the real story is over with Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho. But I want to look at how Doug Wilson connects to Christianity Today. Uh, because in fact, Christianity Today helped platform Doug Wilson. Uh, John Piper helped, you know, give him cover. Oh, he's not a racist, even though he said really racist things. He's totally not a racist, you know? And, and so those are the dyna dynamics that I found fascinating through this story. And I think those are precisely the dynamics that we need to be looking at right now in terms of understanding this insurrection at the Capitol, understanding or asking how far are evangelicals going to go in their support for Trump, in their attempts to undermine democracy, in their use of violence? How far are they going to go? And that's where we absolutely have to be looking at affinities from the quote unquote mainstream and the fringe. And plus, um, we have to acknowledge that this, this is, um, there are important leaders here, but this is predominantly now a populist movement. And so leaders don't really have much power to lead if they're not in the front of this populist movement. Uh, and, and many leaders at the local level have found this out. Many pastors who are trying to, you know, like, hey, guys, no, <laughs> this isn't super Christian. Uh, well, many of them find that they're going to they're gonna be out of a job uh, if they push this. And so it's best to stay quiet, not necessarily because they want to keep their jobs. But, you know, they, what I hear a lot is, uh, I will lose my ability to minister to this flock if I speak out, right? And so, so again, populist dynamics of who's really driving this, leaders who think they have this leadership capacity, very prominent leaders, Russell Moore, for example, right? Key example here, has tried to lead and then post-2016 went very quiet, very quiet and was told, you know, you need to do this apology campaign. You need to make right with, with the Trump supporters in the SBC. Now he just came out again this week, um, a, a very harshly worded 
kind of call to his fellow evangelicals and we'll we'll see what that does. He knows full well this this could be his job, this could be his career and and he felt he needed to make this call. I mean we've seen enormous pressure wielded against um people like Beth Moore. Um and and we can really go back and and look uh, at other folks uh, especially around issues of LGBTQ, Jen Hatmaker, um you can look at Rachel Held Evans being really pushed out of evangelicalism, Rob Bell and and so there's there's this uh, understanding the power dynamics of the movement um, is really important. And as, as a part of this, like who draws the boundaries ultimately, who gets to decide who is in and who is out and where then is the center. And just because evangelical leaders might want to claim the center, I think they found out in the past four years that they're not actually at the center of the movement. Uh, on the issue of the relationship between fringe and mainstream and how, you know, mainstream platforms often give uh, voice to fringe, uh, but also really radical fringe voices. I mean, it, it, a relevant example this week was that Josh Hawley, this senator who, you know, gave like a fist pump to all the dudes, uh, you know, storming the Capitol, um, you know, it was revealed that like a year ago he wrote this article uh, for Christianity Today about Pelagius and how Pelagius is the source of all of our problems, surprise, surprise, whatever. But what was interesting to me about this discourse is that, you know, everyone started, you know, piling on about the notion that Pelagius is the source of all of our problems and how silly is Josh Hawley and blah, blah, blah. And no one was, that I saw, was really talking about the fact that Christianity Today platformed a guy who a year later was supporting an insurrection at the Capitol. And there seems to be just no reckoning of Christianity Today with itself. What have we done? Like, there's no actual recognition that, like, they maybe should think about the people that they associate with. And, and everyone just kind of passes over it. Like, Christianity Today is kind of some, it's like Twitter that, like, everyone can jump on. And there's really no, you know, there's no guardrails, right? So, like, why isn't there this kind of, like, self-reckoning that, Oh, we gave voice to some dude who turns out to like, we gave voice to Doug Wilson. Turns out he's like a neo-Confederate racist who thought that slavery was a good thing for blacks. Well, you know, sucks for us, but you know, not, it's, we didn't say it, you know, like where yeah. is this kind of like recognition that there should be a reckoning with themselves and why well, isn't it happening? Right. I, I think first there's this kind of longstanding pattern of you can, um, you can veer to the right, but never to the left. So the line of orthodoxy is, uh, you know, towards the left and not to the right. And certainly it seems to be the case there. Um, if you look at, 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 at the history uh, that I write, um, but this reckoning, that's a really important question. And this is something that I find really frustrating in this moment. And it, it's a bit delicate to address because on the one hand right now, it's, it's all hands on deck. We need everybody to denounce this violence. We need everybody, everybody to denounce white nationalism, Christian nationalism. So if you're late to the party, hey, welcome, right? But for the leaders, uh, for leaders at places like Christianity Today, for leaders at the SBC, and I'm talking about Russell Moore, right? Um, and others, uh, I mean, I could I could just start naming a whole bunch of names here of people who are speaking out and have been speaking out against the uh, kind of worst extremes of Trumpian Christianity, uh, the worst abuses of the Trump administration. There are many, uh, but they have, and most of these uh, happen to be white men as well, white male leaders. 
And most of them seem utterly unwilling or unable to uh, examine their own complicity in building this movement. Uh, precisely what you were suggesting to ask, you know, what role did we play, our institutions, our organizations in platforming this, in tolerating it, in still, you know, across these pretty fundamental differences, still patting the guy on the back and calling him brother in Christ. And the flip side, who did we exclude? Who did we deplatform? Who did we push out of our communities? And more than that, who did we never even listen to? Who did we pay absolutely zero attention to? Who did we not think we had anything to learn from? And this is where race comes into play uh, very clearly. Uh, and so when I hear many, and I'm, I'm brought into a lot of conversations right now among white evangelicals, what do we do? How do we fix this? And um, I mean, one of the questions I'll, I'll, I'll just throw out is, is this yours to fix? I mean, I mean, you have to, you have to, um, you have to stop this, like, you know, put your foot on the brakes here, do what you can. Um, but in terms of rebuilding, um, is this yours to do? Um, if, if this is so corrupt and if you've ended up in this place and you helped us get here, um, why do we have to urgently fix this? There seems to be this like undercurrent that uh, the future of quote unquote, the church <laughs> rests on, can we get this white evangelicalism right? Let's try again. And I want to say, um, you know, Christianity is not contained within white evangelicalism. It never has been. And very clearly now it is certainly is not. So, um, you know, where is Christianity flourishing right now? And maybe instead of you just like digging in and rebuilding and, re, you know, maybe you just need to leave and go over there and just listen and learn and, and be in that fellowship and um, listen to what you had been ignoring and excluding for generations, really. Um, and so um, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. That said, I also know that there is um, a lot to be said for institutions, that it's very hard to build institutions from scratch. Um, but I think that the leaders, particularly of the white evangelical movement, need to need a lot more deconstruction and before they're ready to jump out in front and rebuild. And maybe that time will never come. Well, ending on a happy note. <laughs> I do find it interesting that um, so many uh, white evangelicals, especially those involved in the church planning movement, say, oh, it's just so hard to rebuild something. Hold on. Church planning is building something from scratch. You've done it multiple times over to become a successful church planner. Like, this is your raison d'etre. It is what you do. And yet it's too hard in this case. Mm. Well, Dr. DeMay, this has been just such a wonderful conversation. We all loved your book and it's been so thought-provoking and generative for all of us. And so we're so thrilled to be able to talk about it with you, but also to be able to think about some of its implications and especially some of its connections to recent events. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation.
If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.